Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books and Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring you a book that really crosses uh, an intersection of two academic disciplines, history and education, uh, that I'm usually interested in, and this one especially today as well. Um, So I'd like to bring uh, Natalia Melman Petrozella and her book, Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture. And this is from Oxford University Press and has just been published. So we're kind of getting it right as it comes off hot off the presses. Um, Natalia, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And if you could, maybe just give our audience uh, a little biography, a little background. How did, how did you get into history and education? How do how those two merge? So I um, have been, well, I was one of those kids who just loved school from, you know, as early as you can imagine. School for me was always, as it is for many children in the West, kind of my central experience of life. And I got very interested in history, probably as a high schooler even, and um, pursued a history major in, in, in college and then went on to be a teacher. And I started realizing as I kind of looked around the world and I looked at some of the things that it looked like were problems in American education that for me, the most fruitful questions to ask were historical questions. So um, I uh, thought about going to law school, as many uh, humanities majors do, and then pretty quickly discarded that plan and realized I wanted to pursue a doctorate in history and specifically to look at um, the history of education in, in contemporary American society. Okay, fantastic. And I, and I should mention that as well, you're uh, right now assistant professor at uh, the New School, and, and we're here sitting at the New School, which is uh, at spring break, but yeah. definitely uh, a great learning institution here in, in New York City. So if we could, uh, let's introduce your book. How uh, you sort of combine this idea of uh, bilingual education uh, with uh, sexual education or reproductive education, or however you want to phrase it. And, and how, do you, how did you sort of put these two ideas together? 
Absolutely. So that is the first question I always get is why sex education and Spanish bilingual education together? These two um, curricula don't really seem to be things that naturally kind of have a matchup or that would be comparative. And that's true in some ways. Um, and the reason I'll tell you how I came to them. So basically, as I read pretty deeply in the history of American education in the kind of the post-World War II era, there was this enormous emphasis on um, desegregation and on the kind of the problems of race and diversity in education, but they focused almost entirely around black-white issues, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a very, for that's for good reason in many ways. I mean, desegregation in the post-Brown v. Board era is probably the most important struggle that our country has dealt with. Um, but I started thinking, well, you know, as I came of age and the kind of when multiculturalism was becoming a watchword in American schools, and I thought, well, there are a lot of different kinds of diversity. What are other ways that struggles over diversity have kind of been hashed out. I found myself in graduate school in California at Stanford, which was very wonderful and fortuitous for, for many reasons. But for this particular reason, you know, California has this incredible kind of um, multiracial, multicultural, politically varied um, landscape there. And so I realized, like, started thinking about what archives were available. Well, some of the central questions that we deal with today over diversity, which is one, the kind of Latinization of the United States since 1965. There's been so many Latino immigrants coming in. Um, and two, the kind of issue of sexual diversity, whether it's sexual orientation um, sexual orientation, really. So there in California, I realized, well, these are two issues which are now nationally interesting that have been hashed out here in the schools in very deep and kind of meaningful and elaborate ways. And so that kind of drew me to look at these two, which are, yes, quite different, but which I think both kind of um, cast a lens on what diversity means in contemporary society. Sure. And I think also something that I found interesting as well is that a lot of times when academics or scholars or, or even just, you know, general books look at this area, they're more talking about higher education. And you you jump in from this from a lens of, of K through 12. So can you kind of talk about some of the reasons there? Absolutely. So um, to me, I mean, the so the... the era that the book looks at is really from the 1960s until, you know, the early 1980s. And I mean, this is a period when young people are kind of claiming agency and authority over their own lives in many different ways and not without a lot of controversy. So there's that already, that you have real activism happening at the K-12 through level. Um, so that in itself was something I think worth looking at. But um, two, I mean, to me, K-12 through education is such a fascinating place to look at um, the kind of broader questions about what a society is valuing at a particular time. What, how do people very explicitly kind of negotiate and navigate these big slippery questions that are hard for historians to get their hands around? They do it in things like the public schools, in advocating for or against um, curricula that they think will or will not kind of produce the kind of citizens that, 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 um, you know, that parents and taxpayers want to produce for the future generation. So for that reason, in the in this era, K-12 through education was just such a rich place to look. Mm -hmm. Also, I should say from a very kind of nitty-gritty sources perspective, you know, as we know, education in the United States is by definition incredibly decentralized mm -hmm. and local, and that can make it hard to make these broad claims. California was exceptionally centralized during this period. Mm -hmm. So you had a kind of really robust educational bureaucracy mm -hmm. 
some of the players in which were household names like Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon. Um, and so these people, largely these guys, were hashing out um, these big questions about Americanism and society, largely through K-12 through education mm. policy. Right, right. And I always like the phrase sort of... Uh, the states are the laboratory for democracy. Or, and so, you know, California is certainly uh, a microcosm or maybe some, the, the leader of that a lot of times uh, in some of the policies that move on to the national discourse as well. Well, absolutely. So in these two issues that I looked at, that is absolutely the case. So in the case of bilingual Spanish bilingual education, so after 1965, you have many, at, at first in the Southwest, but you have many Spanish-speaking immigrants coming into the United States. At first, this was a regional issue. How do we deal with these people, right? And these people, in quotes, I say, were cast by many policymakers as a problem because many came over with very little education. They were sometimes migrant laborers, so they, it was hard to educate kids for the entire school year. And so there became this kind of urgency of how do we educate these Spanish speakers to be Americans? There also was the question of the border. People could go back and forth. So there wasn't like the transatlantic uh, immigration of the early 20th century where there was this presumption that people would be kind of amalgamated into this so-called American melting pot. Mm -hmm. That, which was a regional problem in the 60s and early 70s, has quickly become probably the central national issue over ethnic diversity. Similarly with sex education, in this period, I mean, the sexual revolution, some of the real hotbeds of it, uh, no pun intended, are there in California. And you also have incredible reaction to it. So there's a very big political spectrum there that I don't want to say it was a microcosm of the country at large, because California is a weird and unique place, <laughs> right. but it certainly highlights some of these very important themes, mm -hmm. which would become nationally resonant within just a few years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's kind of jump in. You... you uh, frame this book into two parts. The first part, uh, language, and then the second part, uh, sex. So maybe can we just talk about part one, and then we'll jump into part two. But can you really kind of talk about uh, the beginnings of bilingual education? I think you kind of highlight uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was a 1968 uh, Bilingual Education Act. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about the importance of that? Sure. So, um, uh, all right. So for one, the history of bilingual education in this country is definitely beginning to be told, but doesn't have the uh, kind of very robust history written written about it. Yeah, there's, there's great work out there. So one of what I'm, one of the, you know, assumptions is that, okay, 1968, Bilingual Education Act, this is kind of like quintessential liberal great society program, and that was kind of like the real beginning of this stuff. Now, that's not really a very nuanced reading of the Bilingual Education Act. On the one hand, sure, it's a big, it's, it's unprecedented for the government to take responsibility for linguistic minorities in that way, of course. But what I try, but what I try and show is that there's one, there's this long history, which other scholars have, have examined, of bilingual education in the U.S. that had nothing to do with Spanish speakers, for mm -hmm. sure. But that even in this period, the Bilingual Education Act of 1968 in some ways forestalled or cut short mm -hmm. some much more advent pedagogically adventurous programs which existed beforehand and which existed, and this is like really important, no one, I haven't seen anyone else say this, which existed really with bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. So a program that we today think of as a kind of quintessential progressive lefty liberal thing, bilingual education, I show how 
in the early 1960s, you had a guy like Max Rafferty, who was the superintendent of California schools and then went on to run for Republican Senate. He's known, if anyone still knows him, as this kind of arch conservative, far right guy. And he earned that that name pretty (laughs) late later in the early 1960s. Before bilingual education is, is seen as a kind of left wing cause, he's meeting with the Mexican Minister of Education, doing textbook exchanges, saying, I'm not kidding you, every Anglo child has as much a responsibility to learn Spanish mm-hmm. as Spanish speaking kids have to learn English. And he has all kinds of Republican legislators on his side as well. And so to me, that's that's one dimension of this kind of, uh, you know, prehistory, which I think is really relevant, that before bilingual education became a kind of great society program, you could have this um, bipartisanship and this kind of um, different, like, ideological, um, a a wider ideological kind of spread supporting um, bilingual education. Um, as well on the ground, because of us great, great or not local local tradition of American schools, there were lots of kind of small programs that existed that um, were actually uh, some of them even lost money when the 1968 uh, act was passed. For example, the what I look at in San Jose, you have Ernesto Galarza, who's one of the kind of leading bilingual education advocates in the country. He has this incredible program. He's developed, he's written children's books. He's committed to engage culture and language and the families of these kids in one of the most, uh, in, one, in a city with a huge uh, Mexican-American population. When the Bilingual Education Act is passed, you would think, oh, this is great. Now we can elaborate these wonderful programs. No, actually, a different organization, the San Jose Bilingual Consortium, which it has a very assimilationist, very kind of bare bones um, approach to bilingual education, ends up getting funded. This guy, Ernesto Galarza, ends up, after a long, terrible, acrimonious battle, walking away from the cause, essentially, and being like, I'm not going to fight over this. These Washington bureaucrats think they know what worked for our kids. And that, to me, is really interesting, because there you have a kind of progressive left, leftist educator fed up with the federal government's mm-hmm. support for these programs, you right. know, or a putative support for these programs. So to me, that's like a very interesting twist when we think about where did these programs come from, right? Absolutely. I think the federal act was very important, but it's not only a watershed in the way that we sure. think. So yeah. that's kind of a piece of that of that part. But the one other thing I'll say just... Um, generally about why I think bilingual education is important as part of our broader understanding of American educational history is also understanding the history of multicultural education. Almost all of our histories of multicultural education in this country really focus on race as like the primary diversity category. And they usually look at that through um, history instruction and civics instruction. Bilingual education is totally left out of that. Well, bilingual education was always, on some level, bilingual, bicultural education. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole piece of that that I think is really important to this story and really important to the way that multiculturalism um, has been or not been institutionalized in American schools. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great how you can kind of look at the different uh, levels of how this kind of bubbled up. You know, we have have the top-down approach or we have sort of the bottom grassroots approach and, Mm -hmm. and it, it's never just a, a, a clear cut. Well, this is from the top and this is from the bottom. It's Absolutely not. not in this you know federal system that we have, and everything sort of 
mashes together uh, haphazardly. Oh, absolutely. It, it, yeah, it absolutely does. And you also see the way these different interest groups act um, sometimes at odds with one another. Like, uh, like I said, it, you know, the mo- kind of most prevalent um, ethnic rights struggle that we learn about is the African-American freedom struggle, and as I say, for good reason. But then there can be an assumption, I think also when one is pressed for time and teaching a survey history course, of assuming that other groups' struggles were like the same, just, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit different. Maybe they had right. their particular issue. This is not the case. I mean, I came up with examples of uh, Latino parents and activists actually being anti-desegregation because they needed a critical mass of mm-hmm. Latino kids in a school to get bilingual education funding. Right. right. That's very different from that's a different set of agenda. You know? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you, you focus on uh, uh, Spanish bilingual, but it was actually sort of one of the biggest cases or breakthroughs for bilingual education uh, comes from uh, Lao v. Nichols, I think. Yeah, yeah, 1974. Uh, right, and so can, and then that was sort of taken up as like a, like a cause, like locally. Can you kind of maybe talk about what that sort of... Absolutely. So I focus on um, Spanish-speaking bilingual education, beca- or Spanish bilingual education, because um, in many ways, or in almost every way, uh, Spanish speakers were the group that was most kind of the linguistic minority that was mm-hmm. most um, had the biggest problems with educational attainment. So in the debates around those issues, there was they were kind of the most heated and the most intense about one, what do we do about this problem? But two, what are these people mm-hmm. doing to our culture? Right. Mm-hmm. So you really, I'm really interested not in just schools per se, or really at all in schools per se, but in schools' connection to the larger culture. Right. So the Lauvi Nichols case, which you bring up, which was the Supreme Court case which originated in San Francisco, which in 1974 mandated a kind of federal commitment to um, uh, foreign language speakers is a fascinating kind of instance of this, where the kids that really stood to benefit the most in California from bilingual education were absolutely Spanish speakers. There's a statistic always quoted, or at that time always quoted, that 50% of um, Latino kids were dropping out of school by the eighth grade. I mean, that's really bad, right? Now, when Edward Steinman, who was the attorney who went to try this case, was picking a plaintiff, he chose a Chinese-American mm-hmm. plaintiff, Kenny Kinman Lau. He said quite baldly because that this had to do with the court of public opinion, that there was no way, and I'm paraphrasing, that a Latino kid who was associated with kind of poor educational achievement, with laziness, with all these sort of racist assumptions about Latinos, that they would compel public sympathy. We need to get one of those hardworking Asians, essentially. And these are, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but not for nothing, 1966 is when the New York Times first started use the term model minority to describe mm. Asian American kids. This is already eight years later. So there's already some kind of common understanding and assumptions about what Asian kids represent as foreigners and what Latino kids mm. do, and they're quite different. Okay, wow, that's another, yeah. that's, that could be a whole other book. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, well, and I think another good uh, aspect that's covered here is, uh, you know, we talk about, sort of the Latino voter, the Latino uh, sort of a, a grouping of, of individuals. But you really show that this was not a simply a united front. There was 
all sorts of different uh, areas and interests and angles. So can you talk about sort of how that played out? Absolutely. And so it's interesting when you asked me a little bit at the beginning about my kind of intellectual biography. So one of the things that kind of turned me on to all this is was my growing awareness of the diversity within the kind of category of Lat- Latino in the United States. Myself, I actually grew up speaking Spanish, the child of a Jewish Argentine mother, which is not what anybody assumes when you hear Latino in the United States. So there was that, right? Then I was a Spanish teacher, two largely Latino kids in New York City schools. Mm -hmm. That was already a strange arrangement, but I saw the way this blanket term of Latino was meant to bring in Chilean kids who'd gone to Catholic school, Dominican and Puerto Rican kids who'd been born largely in the United States, but kind of had this back and forth relationship with their home country, Mexican-American kids who had a different set of citizenship issues. And then as I read more, then take, let's say, the Cubans of Florida, who are right. in themselves a diverse group, but who have a whole different set of political um, you know, identities. So to me, the I was very dissatisfied with the kind of blanket term of Latino as explaining anyone's experience. Mm -hmm. In this book, that comes up as well. So California, the largest, unsurprisingly, group of Latinos is Mexican-Americans, and I focus largely on, on them. But then in my study of San Francisco... San Francisco is unique in being a city in which um, Mexican-Americans did not in this period make up a um, majority of the Latino population. So there I kind of explore the way you had all of these kind of Central Americans and Mexican-Americans. I found many of them finding common cause around this issue of bilingual education, kind of forging this pan-Latinismo on the ground because they were so um, aggressed in many ways by, um, you know, this kind of racism and a a lack of receptiveness in the schools. However, I don't want to downplay how much class played into this because there was a whole segment of kind of South and Central Americans who Mm -hmm. left San Francisco, moved to the southern suburbs, and kind of wanted to distance from all this. And I think class throughout this book plays out um, a lot. I mean, one of the things that this book brings up that is, again, not something that I've, ex- I've seen in other places is um, a kind of reckoning with conservative Latinos who were not on board with any of this, right? right. So there, in a lot in Southern California are the people that I'm talking about specifically, but there were a couple of people um, who were very vociferous of say, saying that bilingualism, bilingual education was a fraud, right? right? They called themselves Americans of Mexican descent, not mm-hmm. Mexican Americans, and um, really spoke out against a lot of these, um, a, a lot of these endeavors, which we associate with the ethnic rights movement of this time. Those were some sort of big figures who made themselves very public. But then you had kind of everyday people that I saw as I read so many sources, like parents writing into the New York Times saying, you know, I think it's condescending to us that you think we need a Chicano teacher to teach our children. I had a blonde haired, blue eyed teacher. I could learn. I went to college. And these are Mexican-American parents writing this, right? right? And so that to me is really fascinating. Probably the guy that I focus on the most who embodies some of these tensions is this man, Eugene Gonzalez, who I'd never heard of, who just fascinated me. He's the highest ranking um, a Latino appointee in the uh, California Department of Education, appointed by this man, Max Rafferty, who mm-hmm. I told you had this interesting right. relationship to bilingual education, but became known as an arch conservative. And Gonzalez becomes sort of the front line of negotiating all these bilingual education issues. And he's 
it seems to be quite torn in many ways. Right. He's, um, you know, telling these radical groups, we don't need to hit people with a two by four anymore. Like we need to just acknowledge, you know, Latinos are Mexican Americans are not, are, are a sleeping giant that has been awakened. And so we need to reckon with them, but we don't need to riot. Right. And you see him, especially right. as there's this radicalization after the bilingual education act with the kind of Chicano walkouts in yeah. March of that same year, you see, um, Eugene Gonzalez really kind of struggling with that. And you see other people, those Republicans who supported bilingual ed, not struggling so much and being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want to be involved with this program. This is radical, right? This is not what we had in mind. Mm -hmm. So I think that to me, nuancing both the kind of um, nuancing really the politics internal to um, Latinos in California to me in this period is crucial because often they're presented as sort of undifferentiated and I right. think that's a major, major misunderstanding of American history. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean that could even be a lesson we potentially take into today's politics. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, kind of when you read this you can you can see the seeds and maybe I think that's sort of what you were sort of trying to to show maybe a trajectory or sort of this, the, the, I guess, new right and how that sort of was fostered through a backlash of uh, this growing, uh, uh, I don't know, radicalization, but this, this movement that the progressive thing, things like this was a, very much a pushback and uh, we can see the seeds today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, historians notoriously like think backlash is not a good term to <laughs> okay, use. But, yeah. um, I, I agree with you in some ways that um, absolutely part of the story I'm trying to tell is about backlash and about mm. sort of the more multiple seeds that um, generated the plant that inspired that backlash, I guess right. you would say, right? Because we haven't really, like, to me, one of the things that's just mind-boggling is, is that this very rich history of the new right, the kind of rise of the right literature in America and a very rich history of Latinos in the United States these two literatures have not met they never meet they have not really met at all and to me I was thinking California people, right? right? This is like the fount of both of these studies and they developed in connection with one another right. and affected one another and we've got to take that seriously. So yeah, there's that piece. But another story that I'm trying to tell, and this is not just in the bilingual education story, but across bilingual yeah. ed and sex ed too, is that Rise of the Right does not tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. We have a kind of persistent progressivism which both of these programs were crucial in establishing in American schools that continues to be vibrant, not ascendant. It's certainly contested. There's no question. But I think the contestation between right and left and lots in between can really continues in American mm -hmm. schools. So I don't think we can declare a victory of the kind of, um, you know, uh, purely conservative ten tendencies in American education. Sure. Absolutely. Well, that I think it's a nice connector to the, to the next yeah. part of your book, part two, and this is sex education. And, and the first line that you have is just you're you're quoting i think uh a parent or someone and and it says uh is the schoolhouse the proper place to teach raw sex it's just like a, a wonderful question that i think illustrates uh the the mindset of, of sort of the detractors from from this kind of uh education so can you kind of talk about uh what the environment was then, I guess that was in, 60, in the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. So that's in the middle of the 1960s. So it seems sort of inflammatory and almost laughably kind of, you know, 
like, oh, this, you know, sort right. of like guy must have hangups or something to, to say something like that. But really, I mean, the moment that they're talking about is this incredibly confusing, tumultuous mm. political and cultural moment. So you're in the middle of the 1960s, right? You've got... Um, the Angle v. Vitale um, Supreme Court decision, which basically makes prayer in school not conceivable anymore. You've got a series of Supreme Court decisions which narrow the definition of obscenity as well. So think of what that means. That means that all sorts of things which before were in under brown paper bags or not not uttered at all are now on billboards, on the cover of books. On So you had this kind mm-hmm. of sense that, okay, on the one hand, we can't talk about God anymore in school. Mm-hmm. And we also have like these bodice rippers being sold in the super, supermarket, right? Like what's happening to society? Right. And at the same time, you know, you have the kind of broader um, free speech movement, sexual revolution happening, um, ethnic rights uh, movements going on. So... I argue that a lot of frustrations and anxieties about these issues crystallized in the debates over sex education. So this guy, um, and it was a guy, um, is clearly, um, you know, anti-sex education. And, and he is saying, you know, is a schoolhouse the proper place to teach raw sex? Clearly, it's a rhetorical right. question. The answer is supposed to be absolutely not. But um, uh and he's stressed out because of all of these changes that I said were happening. What's interesting is that the creators of the sexual sex education programs in this period, which gained new energy in this um, in this era as well, they're also stressed out about all these same things, mm-hmm. right? Even though their detractors would place them as these kind of libertine, perverted, hippie radicals who are trying to turn their kids into sex slaves. Most of the sex educators, if you really read what they're trying to do in the 1960s, are equally concerned about the sexual revolution and everything Mm -hmm. happening. They just believe we should talk about these things in order to manage adolescent sexuality. Now, that is still at that period a pretty radical um, declaration Mm -hmm. that we should talk about sexuality at school and Janice Irvine has done amazing work on that and showing how just talking about sex in the 1960s even to quite moderate ends I mean if you look at some of these um, sex ed curricula from this period as I did they tend to culminate in heterosexual marriage right? right the last lessons are about like managing your domestic economy as they talk about um you know, kind of petting or, or um, like premarital sexual mm-hmm. activity. It's always about kind of girls staving off like a boy's, um, right. you know, like uh, um, urges. You never hear really talk about female pleasure or anything like this. This is not totally radical you know, sexual theory or anything like that. But at the same time, talking about any of this stuff was really considered to be quite, um, you know, quite controversial. Absolutely. And there was, uh, and I guess for me, I, I didn't, couldn't really think of a connection, but maybe it was apparent then, but a connection to sort of the uh, fear of communism mm-hmm. and, and sexual education, I think it was highlighted in the Anaheim section. Can yeah, everybody talk? is so surprised about that. So in, so in, so there were a whole series of big fights over sex education during this period in California. So as I mentioned, um, or maybe I didn't mention, California was this kind of seat of incredible educational innovation in this mm-hmm. period. The whole country was looking at California. Right. You have one of these... Um, kind of ed policy guys saying very proudly in the 1960s, it was three months before an idea came out in the journals before we had it in classrooms. Like Mm -hmm. really California was implementing all this new stuff. Sex ed programs were one of those. Um, So in the, 
then as a result, there were a whole bunch of controversies in different California towns, really, really intense controversies. One very intense one was in Anaheim, California, mm-hmm. which I look at. Now, and in Anaheim, the thing that's really arresting about that controversy is that the parents who organized against sex education, as you mentioned, they saw it as a communist plot right. to um, you know, undermine America, to mm-hmm. undermine their children's sense of individualism, right. their children's sense of patriotism. And it's kind of like, what? How does a curriculum um, about reproduction and you know anything else kind of lead to that? And right. so what I, um, and then the funny thing is, even though I read these curricula in such great detail, it became very clear that the uh, anti-sex education people really hadn't read the curriculum, sure. which is sort of like the idea, right? So if you think about it, well, one, um, Cal- Southern California, that's Orange County in this period, mm-hmm. is kind of um, defined by the defense industry in many ways. So you have people mm-hmm. who are already very much in that kind of Cold War mindset. Even right. this is the mid and late 60s, so later than certainly the kind of age of uh, you know McCarthyism and all that in yep. the 1950s. They're still very much in that Cold War mindset. They are also, many of the people who migrated there came from Los Angeles after the Watts riots, right? Mm-hmm and a kind of desegregation problems in L.A. So they came to kind of batten down, you know, kind of like circle the wagons, rather, around some of these changes from the outside world. So then what they saw also was, um, or the way that the communism thing sort of manifested, was also these ideas about what communism um, was supposed to be about in terms of sexuality, right? right? This idea that women in communist countries are sort of genderless. They go out Mm. and they work, right? They They are not home in their beautiful sort of suburban kitchens. Right. Um, you know, they have um, kind of nationalized child care. There were all these kind of stories about how they they actually pass children around to share breastfeeding among different mothers. Like, okay. um, you know, right. marriage is sort of devalued, yeah. godless communism. So right. all these sort of ideas, right? Okay. And so th- th- those kind of connected to, well, what's going to happen if we start talking about sexuality and gender roles in schools? Our kids are going to turn into that, right. right? And so there was one sort of popular narrative which circulated, which was that, um, there, you know, one of the most controversial parts of these curricula was any talk of masturbation. And mm-hmm. so they said, well, they're going to tell our kids about masturbation. So our kids are just going to masturbate all day, turn, be turned mm-hmm. into sex slaves, primed for communist takeover. Right. And so the idea is that by discussing right. sexuality, you are condoning a kind of unrestrained um, sexuality that will div- like, um, you know, sap children of the kind of restraint, patriotism, moralism, which was supposed to be definitive of American culture. And it's interesting, I think, a figure that that comes up a lot as well is Ronald uh, Reagan. Yeah. uh, Who, of course, is, you know, the governor and then, you know, goes on to be sort of this conservative icon presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But can you kind of maybe talk about, you know, he was always sort of this wholesome figure, I guess. So he, he personally was... Sort of very uh, uh, anti-sexual education things like yeah, that. absolutely. So it's interesting on the um, to the point I made before on the bilingual education front. Actually, early on, Ronald Reagan is totally on board with bilingual mm. education long before the Bilingual Education Act. That changes by the 1970s. Mm. These Latino um, community papers are writing like headlines like "Lord Reagan cutting our mm. program." So that that changes, and he certainly is attaining that status as a, and that stature as kind of a conservative icon around sex education. It's really interesting, and I think to me speaks to the kind of much more national import of these programs. 
that. So after a few of these really intense fights, like the one that we just talked about in Anaheim, another one in San Mateo, lots of other ones as well, right. um, Governor Reagan says to uh, Max Rafferty, who I mentioned, like, well, California is descending into moral decay. Right. Be- this sex education thing is really bad. We need to do something about it. So he and Rafferty together appoint this moral guidelines committee. And they say, hey, guys, and they're mostly, well, they have some women on there, too, but they're mostly their appointees. And they mm-hmm. say, devise guidelines for teachers in the schools to teach our children morality because we are in this moral nightmare right Right. now. Oh, and by the way, remember that Supreme court decision? Don't talk about God. Right. So they, he appoints this committee, which gets, I mean, I couldn't believe the mail pouring into this committee from all over the country. We're watching, we're rooting for you root out those, um, you know, those hippies from our schools. Like we, you need to be a leader all over the country. People are watching Mm -hmm. this. Um, What happens um, with that committee, actually, is that Reagan's pastor, Don Muma, who he stayed fine with because he ended up um, presiding at one of the inaugurations, um, Don Muma, who Reagan had appointed as a kind of conservative voice on that committee, actually ends up leading the liberal faction. And actually, what ends up happening, and this is part of my argument about how we've had actually this persistent kind of progressivism, is that even in this committee, which is stacked conservative. The conservatives come up with this long document, you know, against communism, against secular humanism, against um, kind of, you know, any the version of feminism that exists then. And then the Board of Education rejects it. They look it over mm-hmm. and they say, no, we don't think so. They go back to the drawing board, the Moral Guidelines Committee. By now you're there in the early 1970s led by Don Muma, who everyone thought was a conservative, but says, you know, we might actually be coming into new morality in the 1970s. He leads this liberal faction to come up with a version of these guidelines, which is also rooted in a kind of patriotism and a kind of nationalism, but is very different. It's much more in line with what we think of as progressive education today, saying America is wonderful. We We must teach our children to be moral Americans. But that means helping us fulfill the promise we have not fulfilled yet, mm. as evidenced by racism, sexism, all right. these things, right? That's a big deal and a right. big, huge switch. So Reagan's not happy about that, to say the least, mm. right? But to get back to your point specifically about Reagan, these issues become central to the way he builds himself as a national candidate as well, right? right? And you see throughout the late 1960s and 70s in California that many of his rallying issues are precisely these kind of cultural issues. He says, I can't get people to stop talking about Berkeley and what's going on there, right? And right. he kind of deploys that very much as part of his persona of restoring a kind of, um, you know, um, pre-1960s cultural landscape to the United States. And as we see, it's very successful. It, you know, makes right. him a conservative icon. Right, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, I guess kind of moving towards the towards the end of the book, Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, these ideas kind of come, I think, clashing, not clashing together is the right word, but they, they've bubbled up together and we get to a point where this sort of small, like the small government idea and, and sort of anti-tax, uh, I think you, you use a, um, one of your headlines or one of your uh, subheaders is like losing faith in the public schools kind of converges where people are saying, okay, well, look, they're, they're selling us this bilingual education that is, is really just a waste, or they're, they're trying to have this sex education, which is wasting our, our tax dollars. And that kind of comes together uh, as eventually Prop 13, but then it's just this idea that uh, 
some failings within within uh, government and public institutions, really. Absolutely. So during this period that I focused on in this book, from the kind of 60s to the, to the late 70s and early 80s a little bit, one thing that you really have, which now seems almost quaint, is you have this kind of shared idea among across the political spectrum that the public schools are worth fighting for, right? Mm-hmm. You have people of all different political stripes militating, Chicano radicals saying, we need Chicano administrators, and we need different food in the cafeteria, and we need different curriculum. You have Rafferty running for Senate on the platform of reading, writing, arithmetic, and Rafferty, mm-hmm. right? So like, the, uh, I'm sorry, not for the Senate, for the uh, school board position, but this idea for the uh, school superintendent position. Right. But you have this idea across the political spectrum that public schools are worth fighting for no matter what. That starts to dissipate. Throughout the 1970s, I argue that on the one hand, you have, in some ways, the institutionalization of pretty progressive sex and uh, bilingual education, mm-hmm. which is not a story that we really know, right? But on the other hand, this mounting kind of resistance to it one, inhibits the effectiveness of some of those programs for right. sure, but also begins to cultivate across the board also mm-hmm. a kind of dissipating passion for what can be done in the public mm-hmm. schools, a kind of loss of faith there. I mean, I, one flagrant example is Ernesto Galarza, who I mentioned, right. who was like your left-wing kind of progressive yeah. educator who gets so fed up with even the administration of the Bilingual Education Act that he's like, I'm done with yeah. this, right? Then on the other hand, you have less surprisingly... All of these conservatives who go on to later champion much of like what we associate them with today, right? Kind of school choice, vouchers. Yeah. Um, there, there is a tax law that's passed in, I believe, 1978 that makes it easier to, uh, more financially easy to attend um, religious schooling during this period. So you have this kind of loss of faith in that regard generally. Mm-hmm. Prop 13, I think, is a really interesting kind of flashpoint to look at this. So Proposition 13, this major tax revolt in California in 1978, is almost always, in terms of education, positioned as having these unfortunate educational outcomes, right? Mm. So that Prop 13 was passed because people were sick of paying taxes right. for a variety of reasons. And, oh, my gosh, the public schools were lost in the, in the, yeah. in the process. What, an, what you know, How did that happen? I argue, oh, no, I think that, yes, I agree that that was an outcome, but that concern and loss of faith in the public schools was central to the success of that mm. Um, of the passage of that measure. And I draw on examples from, you know, a lot of different places, but you see, especially around these issues, bilingual education, sex education, and a lot of kind of other progressive programs that um, sort of, um, uh, you know, dissatisfaction with the way that they have been executed leads to a, an unwillingness to finance these kind of programs. Right. And among a broader swath of people than one might expect. These yeah. are not just avowed uh, small government conservatives. Yeah. Yeah. And that, to me, is one of the most interesting kind of things that came out of this, too, right, is also knitting together these so-called mm-hmm. cultural concerns with fiscal concerns. I right. mean, you know, those are things are often, um, you know, uh, detached from one another by scholars who or pundits who say, like, oh, you know, they... You know, they, whoever they is, distract the voters with these cultural issues um, and then they vote against their real economic concerns. Well, to me, that's a pretty condescending about the importance of cultural issues. Culture is real. Right. And I think that this interpretation of Prop 13, which I offer, really shows in concrete ways how they're knitted together. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we in this short conversation, we can't go over each detail, but I think this was a a very nice sort of. uh, table setting for those who are interested in, in, in further reading the book. 
But I, I'm personally interested in, in, we talked about it a little bit before the yeah. interview, but can you maybe just give a little bit of like, how, how do you go about finding, are you archives, uh, do your newspapers, like you have some beautiful quotes. I remember somebody said, you know, uh, I think it was sex education is more dangerous than the bomb, Vietnam, and, and all these other things, like this quote, these, these are great. Where, where do you get these? How do you, how do you put this together? Lots of obsessive work, <laughs> basically. Well, actually, so this research began as my dissertation mm-hmm. research, which I completed my dissertation in 2009. So think that I've been researching this in some way for like 10 years, <laughs> right. right? Now, in the course of those 10 years, so much has been digitized in right. a way that is actually beautiful, but that also I'm banging my head against the wall. When I see some document that I spent hours pulling out of dusty things yeah. at great experience, Fence in a hundred degree Sacramento weather, you know, and now it's like Google it and it yeah, shows yeah. up, right? So um, now there's a lot of digital stuff that you can do. Although I, I think real archives are really valuable because we will never digitize everything. But specifically, how did I um, go about finding archives? Well, one place to always start um, is just if, if you're at a university. I mean, the New York Times and the LA Times are, are archived historically mm-hmm. on ProQuest. So for me, that was huge. Those are both kind of papers of record. So you can kind of start. Right. Figuring Figuring out like what were people fighting about? Mm-hmm. What were the big issues here? Um, and that's the kind of way to get your feet wet. Then once you kind of figure out, okay, well, what archival collections? Like, how am I going to really bring something new to the table beyond yeah. what someone journal, you know, what someone um, you know, kind of like googling on online could could figure out? So then um, the, the real. Uh, gem there is WorldCat, right? Which WorldCat mm-hmm. collects all oh, of the archival collections um, uh, nationally, maybe even globally. World, yeah. too, I think it's globally. Um, <laughs> um, it collects all these archival collections. And there, for me, you kind of have to just get obsessed with searching all different mm-hmm. kinds of terms, figuring it out, looking at the footnotes of scholars that have come before you and figuring mm-hmm. out, okay, well, they have this one line about this one place, right? right? Let me go in and try and figure out, like, maybe that's going to be a big part of what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Do that, does that person have papers or does sure. that, you know? And then also, um, you know, uh, I used, it was interesting um, for some of the oral history I did, and this is right when this these sort of networks were just getting started in kind of probably around 2005 or so, I would, um, I was, you know, this is fairly recent history. So I was looking to get in touch with people who had lived through this. Mm-hmm. So I went on, I don't even know if it exists anymore, but something called classmates.com, I think it was. And this was basically, this is like a pre-Facebook <laughs> right. kind of way to get in touch with old classmates. Right. And I didn't lie about who I was, but I basically joined like the classes of uh, 1968 in all these different high schools right. and said like, do you want to put your class into history? And then I connected <laughs> with a whole bunch of people, of course, as a self-selected group. Sure. So I'm not doing a sort of longitudinal study based right. on that, but in terms of adding a little bit of um, kind of um, that oral history voice to this, yeah. that was really useful. Then, you know, talking to people, I went to people that you don't even really expect, like for some of these urban histories, um, like the local studies, I really wanted to just deep dive into the city at large at that period. Mm-hmm. Like, what did it feel like to live there? Right? right. So that meant paging through all this microfilm of papers, which are so far from any kind of paper of record, right. but saying like, oh, you had like mother-daughter beauty pageants every week there and you had Sadie mm-hmm. Hawkins Day dance and there was an argument about like the Halloween parades and like for me that sort of began to give me a worldview of the world that I was entering because you really, one of the things I'm trying to do with this book 
is say that, you know, educational history, which is a field I'm proud to be a part of, so um, we have lots of single-issue studies, and we have lots of kind of institutional studies mm-hmm. about schools or educational issues, but which are a little bit outside of the kind of larger mainstream of American political and cultural history. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a disservice to everybody. So what I wanted to do was kind of look at these educational issues as like, how are these embedded and creating and crucibles for our larger political culture? Well, the way to do that right. is to get your feet wet, more than your feet, dive headlong right. into these diverse sources, which might seem far afield from bilingual education or sex education, but which tell you, what was it like? Like, I spent all this time looking at, like, um, these, like, Spanish language marketing campaigns in San Francisco in the 70s. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of a big deal right. that they were marketing to this group as a kind of market segment, right? right? So anyway, so that's sort of a long answer, but anything you can get your hands on yeah. is really, really useful to kind of start piecing together yeah. the world because that's what we do as historians it's sort of a luxury that we don't have um I mean, we have a methodology but we don't have methodology in that same rigid way as like a more for example mm-hmm. um quantitative social scientist right, might have yeah. like we're trying to uncover some historical moment is a lot of our work right? right and so to do that you can be and have to be really resourceful and creative and drawing from many many different things and that's just so exciting yeah, to me. that's fantastic. Anyway. That, I think that was a, uh, a, a very nice and, and tight way of just describing probably years and years of, Many years. of research and, and yeah. time of your life. Uh, so thank you for that. Sure. And kind of the final question that we have on, on the New Books Network, but can you kind of give us uh, what's next? What are you working on? Uh, uh, I know this just got done, but, you know, as academics, it's always the next one gets done and then open the door to another. Yeah, no, I'm actually very excited about this new project that I have. So the new project that I'm working on is a kind of history of the emergence of wellness culture in America mm. since 1950. And so the idea behind that and generally the Hopefully the subtitle will be something like Food, Fitness, and American Selfhood since 1950. So looking at the way since the kind of birth of the so-called affluent society in the 1950s, the way Americans have spent more time and energy investing themselves in food and fitness pursuits. And Mm. with that, kind of building these ideal and quite exclusive versions of the American self, which are kind of... um, racially, morally, regionally invested. And um, for me, so like specifically, what will that look like? Well, part of it, some of the things I want to look at, like on the fitness side, I'm really interested in the kind of mainstreaming of yoga culture in America, Mm -hmm. looking at the way that the kind of um, largely women's like group fitness uh, craze of the 1980s, like what that really meant, right? Um, I'm also interested in the um, democratization of so-called like race culture. And I say that not race as in, you know, the social construct, but like running Running, races, right? Like how did it go from in 1966 when the book Jogging was published, Mm. it now seems like, why would you have to publish a book called Jogging, right? right? But um, people didn't jog for fun. People didn't get on treadmills and gyms or anything like that. Now, like not everybody, but lots of people say, oh, I'm going to go run a 5K or I'm walking for the cure. And so to me, there's sort of interesting insights there about American community and individualism and capitalism and kind of a lot there. Similarly, on the food side, some of the issues I want to look at is the kind of rise of organic farming in the United States as a major kind of industry. Mm-hmm. Um uh, uh, then this might seem very different, but um, the kind of natural motherhood movement around mm. like feeding natural foods, breastfeeding, etc. So to me, there's a lot in, I haven't quite parsed it out yet, but I'm working on it. And I got really interested in this in some ways, in part when I was researching 
classroom wars, you know, there I was looking at California in the 60s and 70s and kind of like the rise of like new age culture and like right. all of this kind of like in many ways anti-materialism that I was seeing in California as well. So that started to interest me. And then just in my own life, which had always been very distant from kind of my scholarly pursuits, I've been like sort of deep in this like mind-body wellness thing, right. but also like critically observing, like why now? Why has this become so popular? Why do people find this mm-hmm. transformative? Why women? Why, you know, so sure. to me, um, I'm working on bringing that all together in a new project, but that's the the next stage is how did wellness become okay. this national kind of, craze yeah well that's interesting i think there's definitely connections to to this book as well and uh we'll be certainly looking for that maybe thank you yeah Yeah, (laughs) exactly but uh i just want to let everyone know thank you for listening uh thank you to uh natalia melman petrozella uh and i encourage you to go check out classroom wars language sex and the making of modern political culture uh thank you for tuning in to new books and education this is your host Ryan Allen, and I hope you learned something.